Well, good evening. Welcome to Valley Life. My name is Adam Young. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as I was telling someone earlier this evening, it's kind of strange to be starting uh, night service and it's light outside. But I think all of us are welcoming that transition. And so uh, great to have you this evening, even though it doesn't quite look like evening outdoors. Um, you know, we've been on a journey together discovering what true identity is and seeking to answer this question, who am I? And to answer that question as a part of our journey together, um, we've been working to finish this statement, I am blank. And when you think about it, there are natural ways in which we can answer that question, finish that statement, fill in the blank. Um, but then there are also how God intends for us to fill in that blank. You know, when we think about naturally how we would finish that statement, um, we often would use certain labels uh, that we've created within our culture that make it a little bit easier to express our identity. Things like introvert and extrovert. So you may finish that statement with, I am an introvert or I am an extrovert. Now, just out of curiosity, um, we're going to play a little game here, I guess you could call it. We're going to play along. So just by a show of hands, out of total curiosity, how many of you would say, I am an extrovert? Okay. And then how many of you would say, I am an introvert? Okay. So that's pretty close to half and half. Definitely more introverts this morning. Um, and so... I I don't know if you know this about me or how well you know me, but I am an extreme introvert. Um, as a matter of fact, so there's a personality profile that used to be really big, you know, 20 years ago uh, called Myers-Briggs. And if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, this will give you some insight into me. I am an extreme ISTJ, if that means anything to you. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when I was working on my first master's degree, one of the things we had to do, we took a course on ministry leadership, and it was all about learning how to lead others. And so as a pastor, I have staff and employees and volunteers that serve and work underneath me, and I need to know how to effectively lead and care for them, and it helps to know their personality makeups and how people respond to different things. And so uh, as a part of this, we took uh, the Myers-Briggs profile, and my uh, response was so extreme I don't know if they still do it now, but at the time, I my personality profile was the example they used at my seminary of what an extreme personality looks like. Um, because I'm off the charts on all four aspects, including introvertedness. Now, some people are like, wait a second, like, how can you be a pastor and be an introvert? And you have to understand how introvertedness and extrovertedness work. It's really about what gives you energy what recharges your batteries. Um, as an introvert, alone time is what recharges my batteries. An extrovert is someone who gets charged up and excited and energized by being around people and having social interactions. Uh, my wife is a great example of an extrovert. My wife will spend two or three or more hours uh, with a group of women uh, you know, over lunch or at coffee, talking for hours on end, and then as soon as she's done with coffee, um, she will go to her car, and she will call me, and she will begin to tell me about the last several hours of discussion and conversation, and this is usually how the conversation ends. It's, 
okay, I'm pulling in the garage. So I'm in and we'll finish this conversation. She, she gets energized by being with people and uh, she wants to continue talking and interacting. Like I'm the opposite, right? When I'm done with coffee, I turn off my phone so nobody can, uh, can bother me. I need like a cold, dark room to recharge after um, spending a lot of social time with people. And so as your pastor, it, it doesn't mean that I don't love you. It doesn't mean that I don't like you. It just means you exhaust me. And I just need that recharge time. And, um, and so some of us, we would finish that statement, I am an introvert. I am an extrovert. Or um, some of the other personality profiles, like uh, I'm a thinker or I'm a feeler, are, are big ones. And just out of curiosity, how many of you in here would say, naturally, I'm a feeler? That's Okay, and then how many of you would say, I'm a thinker? Okay, um, so the introverted, extroverted one, that's pretty easy to tell because just as you like spend more time with people, you kind of learn what charges your batteries. The thinking, feeling thing is a little harder to know about yourself, and one of the ways that you can tell is by the language you use. Like, I'm a thinker, and you will almost never hear me say the words, well, I feel as though... Like, as a matter of fact, the few times I've said it, I've actually caught myself and been like, did I say that? Like, uh, whereas what you will hear me say all the time, well, I think, um, which just kind of gives you insight to who you are. And so there are natural ways in which we will finish this statement, I am blank, by certain labels that um, whether it's society or social psychology um, has developed to help us understand ourselves but then there are also ways that God wants us to finish this statement. And in week one of our series, we answered it like this, that in Christ, I am new. And last week, as we continued our study, we finished the statement like this, I am loved. And if you weren't here for those two weeks, and maybe those two statements resonate with you particularly um, we aren't going to recover all that material, but those messages are available um, on all of our social media platforms and website that you can watch or listen to at another time as maybe one of those resonates with you in a particular way. But you know, when we finish this statement, when it's driven by us and how we would want to finish that statement, it often changes over time. Sometimes it changes because our honesty and our self-awareness changes. When I first took a Myers-Briggs test was uh, probably 20, more than 20 years ago. And it was after I had gotten hired on at a church. Uh, it was my first formal staff ministry vocational paid position. And a part of the onboarding process was some different um, tools that our HR department used. And one of them was a personality profile. And um, I remember when I took that test, feeling this pressure that like as a pastor, I thought I was supposed to be extroverted. Like that's what a pastor was supposed to be. I mean, after all, being in ministry, being a pastor is a very people-oriented uh, job. And so even trying to portray myself as more extroverted than I really was, and I was also really young and probably not fully self-aware at that time, I still tested as an introvert, just like in the middle, like right on the line between, between an introvert and extrovert. And, but years later, when I felt more comfortable in my own skin and how God had created me, uh, and didn't feel the pressure to be someone I wasn't, and I was older and knew myself better, uh, that's when I tested like off the charts introvertedness. 
Um, but sometimes it changes because we actually change. Like my wife is more of an introvert now than she was when we got married. She was probably sort of on the extreme extroverted end and has come more towards the middle. And then even if you think about it, how would you have finished this statement five or 10 or 20 years ago? I mean, some of you weren't alive 20 years ago, but you can play along with me. Uh, it, it would have changed. Like when we were younger, especially like when we were kids, we would never have said, I am. We would probably have said, I want to be. And even that would change. Like if you had asked me when I was a kid what I wanted to be, it would change with the seasons. In the summer, I would have said, I want to be Ivan Rodriguez, Pudge, right? The catcher for the Texas Rangers, if you're a baseball fan at all. Um, be, why would I have said that? Well, because it was summer and I was playing baseball. If you had asked me in the fall, I would have said, I want to be the next quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Why? Well, because it was fall and I was playing football. And also because I had this um, delusion that I was meant to be the next quarterback for the 49ers. Um, so if you don't know, my last name is Young. And there was a time when there was a guy playing quarterback for the 49ers named Steve Young. And my birthday, October 11th, it's creepy that I know this, but Steve Young's birthday is October the 11th. He wore number eight and played quarterback. I wore number nine and played quarterback. I knew it was destiny that I was suppo supposed to follow in his footsteps. I was supposed to be the next quarterback of the 49ers. It didn't work out. But um, so like at different stages, if you'd asked me in high school before I felt a call to ministry and said, what do you want to be? I would have said, I want to be a meteorologist. Specifically, I wanted to be the weatherman on TV. Can you picture it? I mean, I would have had to dress nicer, but... I wanted to be the weatherman on TV. And so as we're growing, um, things change. And as we grow and mature, come to know ourselves better and more honest. And the Bible loves to use this as an analogy, this idea of growing up and maturing, not only of physical and mental growth, but of spiritual growth as well. And so we're going to look together. We're going to begin our journey in discovering true identity in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you are following along with us in the Bible app, or if you brought a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. We're going to start in verse 11. Start in verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. And Paul says this, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. We can all resonate with that no matter what life stage you're in. That we can look back over former periods of our lives and we can see growth and maturity and how our thought processes and the way we see ourselves and the way we see the world changes and develops. And Paul's going to take it further. Verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul begins to reflect on this growth and maturity process. And at one point, he likens it to looking in a mirror dimly. Now, Paul did not have the advantage of indoor plumbing and water heaters, but you can imagine just what it's like when you get out of a really hot, steamy shower especially if you're like my kids and you forget to turn the exhaust fan on and it really is steamy in there. 
Um, our family shares one bathroom, so it's a constant like battle with that. But you step out of the shower, and the mirror is covered in steam and fog, and you can, you can see an outline. You can sort of see yourself in the mirror, but, but you only see it dimly. You only see it vaguely. You don't see full details. But then notice what Paul does here. The beginning of verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. So even as a grown adult, after Paul has reflected on, hey, I used to think like a child, but when I became a man, I thought like a man. But here he says, but even now we only see in a mirror dimly. In the next sentence, for now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Paul recognizes that just because he's grown and matured and he's a man now doesn't mean that he knows everything. And it means that he doesn't even know everything about himself. And then there's this statement in this verse. For now we see in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. Well, he doesn't say it in these verses, but if you back up in the context of 1 Corinthians 13, that then is when Jesus comes to finish what he started. When Jesus came, Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom, a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom that we don't see in the same way that we see other kingdoms on earth. A kingdom that turns the way our world works upside down. A kingdom that operates totally opposite. Like this, like those who would be first should be last. Or like this, like those who want to lead actually must be a servant of others. Or that if you really want to live, then you have to die. It's a new kind of kingdom. It's a new kind of seeing the world. It's a new world order that Jesus came to inaugurate and establish. And ultimately, he established it not only with his life and his ministry and his teaching, but with his death. That on the cross, he died for you and I, for our sin that separates us from our Creator, that separates us from this kingdom where God rules and reigns. And because of the death of Jesus, God can not only rule and reign on this earth, but rule and reign in our hearts. And on the third day, he rose, defeating sin and death and the grave. And Paul says, then, that day when Jesus returns to finish what he started, to complete the kingdom that he began, to make it official and fully established so that we can live with him and his kingdom for eternity, it's only then that we'll see fully. It's only then that we'll know completely. Then he says this, we'll know even as I have been fully known. And so this week, as we're exploring true identity, we might finish this statement like this. I am known. That's a statement that resonates. Because in a day and an age when we are constantly surrounded by people, yet most feel constantly alone. Alone. 
in a day and age when we can open up an app on our phone and we have an exact number of how many friends we have. We can put it to an exact number. Yet if we really looked at it, most people don't feel known at all. Because the only thing people know about them is what they choose to put online, what the highlight reel of their life. But no one really knows. But in Christ, we are known. Now there's another place in the New Testament where Paul teaches about this idea of being known. We're going to turn to Galatians 4 in just a minute. You're welcome to start that uh, journey if you have your paper Bible open. Um, let me give you a little background to Galatians. And so Paul who we've talked about numerous times, and even in this series, we've talked multiple times about the radical transformation that he went through, the, the radical identity transformation that he experienced when he met the resurrected Jesus. It changed everything about who he was and how he saw Jesus and the world and even himself. Paul goes on a journey to begin sharing what this new radical identity in Christ is all, all about. That he goes throughout the Roman Empire sharing about what Jesus came to do. And one of his very first stops was in a region called Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And as he began to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, of his life and his death and his resurrection, and how it changes who we are, many of the people in the region of Galatia, that would be the Galatians who lived there, experienced a radical transformation themselves after hearing the gospel preached by Paul. You see, within their Roman system of worship, those people were oppressed. They believed in a whole pantheon of gods who were always angry with humans and usually angry with each other. You had to do all of these things, jump through all these religious hoops and make sacrifices just to keep these angry gods from lashing out at you. And then they found a new identity in Christ and a freedom because Jesus was the sacrifice that they were now no longer required to make. That in Jesus there was freedom. That He, as the sacrifice, paid the penalty for our sins. And rather than worshiping a God who was always angry, they came to worship a God who loved them. You don't find love as a theme in ancient pagan worship and religion. And so after a while, Paul left Galatia to travel to new places to continue to preach the gospel and help people experience this new identity in Christ. And after leaving, he later writes them a letter, the letter to Galatians that we have now. And so let's look at Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. And Paul said this in his letter, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You see, what happened is when Paul left to go and continue his travels, his ministry, some other teachers moved into the region and they be began teaching something different than Paul. 
they began coming in and teaching things like Jesus is really, really, really good, but he's not enough. You need Jesus, but he's not enough. You need Jesus plus a bunch of rules that you need that need to be followed. You need Jesus plus these religious hoops that you need to jump through in order to be truly saved and truly religious. And Paul heard about it. He heard about these people who were preaching what he would call another gospel. And so he writes this letter to the Galatians to ask them, how could they walk away from Jesus to go back into an enslaved system? into a system that required them to follow all of these rules in order just to keep God happy and off their backs? How could they experience genuine freedom in Christ and then go back to that old way of living and worshiping that was built upon guilt and fear and anger? That's like being set free and then choosing to become a slave again. So Paul wants to remind them that there is freedom in Christ. And that freedom is built upon knowledge. But Paul wants to make sure that they don't get the wrong idea. Yes, there comes a certain point where you didn't know God and you come to know Him. There's a certain point in all of our journeys where we, we didn't know and then we come to know. That we come to know that Jesus died as a sacrifice in our place, worthy because He lived the perfect life we couldn't live. We come to know that He loves us because He gave His life for us. We come to know that He rose on the third day, defeating sin and death in the grave, that those things no longer define who we are, that if we identify with Him in a death like His, we can identify with Him in a resurrection and a new life like His. There's a moment where we didn't know and we come to know. That's true. But if that's all it was, if our salvation was built upon our knowledge, then it could lead to arrogance. Paul recognizes that we do not come to know God, but that ultimately, or that we do come to know God, but ultimately, it's about being known by God. There's a New Testament scholar called, his name is Bruce Longenecker, who writes about this idea of knowing and being known. He, he says this, I just want to share this quote with you because I love it. He says, relationship with God does not have its basis in human seeking, that would be mysticism, or doing, that would be legalism, or knowing, that would be Gnosticism. That's an ancient life philosophy um, from the early centuries uh, AD that used to teach you were saved by having special um, elite knowledge. Um, but it, our relationship with God, originates with God and is carried on always by divine grace. And so maybe we do things a little different according to labels. We probably don't talk a lot about Gnosticism or mysticism. But in the 21st century, we do the same thing. That we think that we can find true freedom and salvation in, in other things, in having uh, the, the, the right seeking. We call that today either philosophy or theology, if it's oriented at God in particular. 
We think if, if we can just figure out the system, if there's a special piece of knowledge that we can grasp, if we can articulate a certain theological concept or understand life and relationships from a philosophical standpoint, that it'll bring freedom. We do it by our actions too. Things like humanitarian aid. We think, well, if I can do enough good things that it'll make up for the wrong and the guilt that I carry, and so I can find freedom, I can find salvation if I can just become a better person. Or we do it with knowledge. It's just about attaining all the right data and information. That's where true freedom will come from. It will be discovered through the scientific process. Now, let's, let's be clear. When it comes to the Bible, uh, it actually encourages philosophy and theology. It encourages us to think deeply. When it comes to humanitarian aid, the Bible demands it, that we treat others with love and with the dignity that they were given by their creator. When it comes to science, the Bible expects it. It expects that we would continue to grow our knowledge base of the world that God created. But it doesn't bring freedom. And it doesn't bring a renewed identity. So what does it mean to be known by God? Well, there are two examples that I want to share tonight of, that will illustrate for us what it means to be known by God. And the first one is this. That to be known by God is to be chosen by God. Look with me in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to read this and then I'll provide a few context clues just to help us understand what's being said if maybe this passage is new to you. Genesis 18, starting in verse 17, it says this, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation and, mighty, and a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In chapter 12 of Genesis is when Abraham enters into the scene. He's called Abram at that point. And God chooses to do something amazing through him. He takes a man who uh, has no children. His wife has never been able to have children. And they're what the Bible actually calls really, really old. They're beyond the childbearing years. And God says, Abraham... I'm going to do something amazing through you. I am going to give you descendants that number the stars and the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. I am going to create a new people through you, a new nation through you and your line. I am going to bless this people so that they can be a blessing to all the peoples, to all the nations of the earth. Ultimately, we see Jesus, who is one of the descendants of Abraham, born into this world is the greatest blessing designed to bless all the peoples, all the nations of the earth. And here in this passage, as God is reflecting on what he is going to do through Abraham and his family, he says this in verse 19. For 
I have chosen him. Now, that's how we translate it from Hebrew into English. It was originally written in ancient Hebrew, but the word for chosen here is actually the word known. What God actually says is, for I know him. To be known by God is to be chosen by God. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, the first part of verse 2, he communicates the same idea written and talking about the descendants. This is hundreds of years after Abraham, but talking about Abraham's descendants, this nation, this people group. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. It's not that God didn't know the other families. It was that God had chosen this family. It's to be known by God is to be chosen by God. What the Bible also teaches that to be known by God is to be intimate with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You know, you can learn a lot about someone from their online dating profile, but it doesn't mean you know them. You can read all about someone, but it doesn't mean you know them because you only know through intimacy. And so to be known by God is to be chosen by Him, intimate with Him. But then it makes us stop and think about the opposite. About what it must be like to not be known by God. I want to share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis as he's reflecting on this same idea. He says this, in some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of Him who is is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of Him who knows all. So it begs the question then, How can we be known by God? Let's look at the two final verses. 2 Timothy 2 and the first part of verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His. And then in reflecting on the life and ministry of Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name... He gave the right to become children of God. To be known is to be His. And to be His is reserved for those who have received Jesus and believed in His name. As we reflect upon who we are, our identity, as we continue this process of discovering true identity, it is in Christ and Christ alone that we can say, I am am known. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this moment and this time. I thank you that as we as we reflect upon your goodness and your grace, that it is in you and you only that we are known even when we don't fully know ourselves, 
in you we are known. And that even as you knew us, you still chose to die for us. Because while we were still sinners, you died for us. We thank you that in you we find a new identity. That we are chosen and loved by you. I'm going to ask you just to keep your eyes closed for a moment as we enter into a time of response and reflection. This moment is a moment, a gift to you to stop and to think, to reflect upon the scriptures that we read tonight, to allow God to continue speaking and for us to respond. As we do respond, if you'd like to stay seated in just a moment, an attitude of prayer, then we invite you to stay in that moment. If you'd like to stand and sing and rejoice at being known, at being fully known, in a day and an age when it's hard to, to be known that in God you are, and if you want to stand and respond and sing, then you do that. At the back of the room is the table, the bread and the cup, where we go to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us so that in Him we could find a new identity. The broken bread representing His broken body, the cup representing His poured out blood for you, His sacrifice for you to inaugurate a new kingdom, a new existence, a new identity. Lord, would you be honored by the way in which we respond to you this evening? That we would celebrate being fully known and that we would take comfort that in being fully known, you love us. Lord, may all that we do bring you honor and glory this evening. 